Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Okay, that's it. So here we go. Uh, All human beings have two rather distinct memory structures. One is known clinically as explicit or declarative memories. Explicit memories are events in life that we can consciously recall whenever we choose to. We know that these events happened in the past, not the present, and we can put these events into language and words, but these events do not uh, generally uh, influence our behavior unless we so choose. Explicit or declarative memories in Buddhist lingo, Buddha called this in the fourth foundation of Dharma, essentially manas. It's the the conscious mind, um, these declarative explicit memories are largely organized by the brain using region known as the left hippocampus, which is a part of your midbrain that can turn experience uh, into learning that can be organized in chronological order where you can have tell a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Good thing about the, the hippocampus is that it can essentially inhibit when we need an emotional response. So when we have an ex- memories that are stored in the explicit left hippocampal regions, not only can we talk about it and turn it into a story, but the emotional activations are largely regulated. Okay, so that's memory system number one. And then memory system number two. And I have to work with me because my left is your right. Uh, Anyway, so I'm doing it wrong for you. But anyway, so implicit non-declarative memories are stored largely unconsciously. They're stored primarily using a region of the brain called the right amygdala. And when people have traumas or extremely emotional events, uh, we see that the right amygdala is dominant when the memories are triggered. Um, Procedural memories, which are also unconscious memories, are different. They're actually stored and organized largely by the basal ganglia and other right hemispheric regions. Those are the kind of memories that allow you to ride a bike, swim, play ping pong. I don't know why that came out. I don't know. (laughs) I don't play ping pong. I mean, I can, but I don't. Uh, (laughs) It's just what my brain searches for examples, more elegant things generally come up than that. But anyway, so, uh, you know, the way you you can strum a guitar, uh, play any sport you do, any you know any activity that while you're doing it you can't really na- you don't narrate or think about 
you just are doing it. But if somebody asks you to stop and say, well, uh, how exactly are you riding on that bike? You wouldn't be able to describe it. You just can do it. That's a procedural memory. If in the middle of swimming, somebody said, well, exactly how are you swimming right now? You wouldn't be able to stop and narrate the experience and you wouldn't even be able to recall the exact experiences where you learned it. So those are procedural memories, but emotional non-declarative memories are largely organized by the right amygdala. These are uh, known to us in very different ways than our explicit memories. An explicit memory, you can say, somebody can ask you, you know, hey, what did you do this summer? And you can say, well, blah, 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 I went uh, to this place upstate, or I worked at uh, this job, or I, and you can turn it into a story. Um, so it's essentially language-based, and in, when you recite it, you also see some images. Um, primarily, right amygdala-based uh, memories, they do have images to them, for sure. They're known as flashbulb images, but um, they also are largely stored with gut sensations, feelings, and behavioral impulses. So suppose you're in a car accident and there's this sudden tension and it's very scary and right out of it, right in the midst of it, you dissociate, which means afterwards you check out, you're in a state of shock. So in that experience, your left hippocampus is completely switched off and the memories are now stored in an unconscious region of your brain, the right amygdala. You no longer, because of that, can narrate exactly what happened. What you've got stored are some random images that don't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what you have is feelings of fear and a kind of uh, maybe a hypervigilance the next time you get in a car. Or you might suddenly tense and flinch if you hear a sudden car screeching or you see lights coming at you. It'll create a very visceral, somatic, physiological response. So implicit emotional non-declarative memories speak to you through the body because the right amygdala is, has a lot of axonic connections with your body. Left hippocampal memories speak to you in language and stories because they have far more axonic connections to Broca and Wernicke's region of the brain, which is far more language-based. Um, here's the issue with emotional memories. Emotional memories are timeless. An event that was traumatic, that happened to you 30, 40 years ago, until you process it, can remain just as active, charged, essentially what's known as latent, or essentially sometimes they create, uh, uh, what's the term, um, muscle, uh, muscle impulses that get you ready to take an action. So, for example, if that car accident happened 25 years ago, but because it was so scary, you checked out, you dissociated, you were in a state of shock, you 
never were able to process it, and we'll talk about what processing is like in a moment, uh, every time you get in a car, subsequently, you might feel a degree of tension. Or if you hear sounds of cars screeching, for years later, you might have a degree of anticipatory distress, which means anticipating an accident or something bad happen. So emotional memories can keep us vulnerable and can create anxiety and distress for decades, in fact, entire lifetimes until they are processed. There's four types of events that create uh, anticipatory distress or anxiety. Uh, the first is annihilation experiences. Any uh, any event that uh, creates the anticipation of one being overwhelmed, physically injured, harmed, at any time in life where there we experience a sudden uh, physiological vulnerability, uh, the anticipation, the the actual experience of harm, then afterwards there can be significant anticipatory distress where anytime we're in even a remotely similar situation uh, or we encounter any of the same sensations that were present in the original trauma can trigger us to go either into a hypervigilant, which means on guard, looking around, trying to find the, the stressor, the threat, or B, the exact opposite, hypervigilant, which means numbing out, checking out, dissociating, uh, a tendency to literally go off into an interior realm that's disconnected. So that's one type of uh, and, uh, event that creates anticipatory distress. The second is separation from a loved one, as you probably at some point in your life have had a sudden abandonment. You find a partner that you trusted is cheating or suddenly ghosts you. I mean, I hope I'm using the language correctly. <laughs> uh, suddenly disappears, uh, rejects you, or you're in a trusting relationship, it seems, and then suddenly your partner begins to attack you, criticize you, control you, becomes unsafe then that creates either two outcomes. One, the expectation of abandonment, which will follow you in subsequent relationships, and you'll constantly be hypervigilant looking for cues of how is this person going to abandon me, why is this person, any subtle clues, and it'll make you be on edge, anxious, uncomfortable, and you'll constantly be looking for the signs of disappointment, or you might wind up avoidant afterwards, which means after having some people go into resonant emotional relational experiences from a place of secure attachment, which means they expect the best, but then suddenly something bad happens, and from that point on they become avoidant in their attachment in that they stop become seeking intimacy. They stop seeking commitment. They become intimacy and commitment averse. So that's the second kind. Sudden separation from the loved. And uh, three, 
is neurotic fear of social rejection. That's also known as neurotic anxiety. Um, I love this one. I feel it's close to my heart. Uh, They stem from early disruptions and bonding. Of course, it can happen in childhood where a child doesn't feel accepted or seen by a dominant caregiver, but it also can stem from early peer bonding experiences, those early times when you go to a uh, schoolyard and the other kids all seem to know you and everybody seems to, not seems to know you, seems to know each other, everybody seems to have already established bonds and you feel like an outsider and you try to win acceptance to a social group and they ridicule you or ostracize you and there's this extreme feelings of woundedness especially any form of social humiliation triggers your anterior cingulate cortex which lowers your opiate levels and your dopamine and makes you depressed and makes you feel really wounded and after that the long-term ramifications are um, extreme avoidance coping where people will not express themselves creatively or take uh, risks in their career they tend towards perfectionism and workaholism they tend towards of course social anxiety and false self strategies where they start um, uh, <clears throat> they start performing for love inauthentically uh, and of these first three categories annihilation fear separation from loved and social rejection interestingly enough all of these are in the Buddha's first noble truth which means the Buddha said no matter how you live your life you're going to experience this you're going to know all kinds of negative uh, experiences throughout your life at times where you're going to feel uh, unsafe you're going to experience separation from the love people you're going to be stuck with who will not be pleasant or nice to you so you're going to experience forms of abandonment so in other words this shit is going to happen whether we like it or not the fourth is decompensation it's the fear of falling apart anybody ever had that one losing your mind not being able to put the pieces back together becoming a mess all right so you're all very well regulated congratulations (laughs) but uh for many of us who've had uh any experiences with pathologizing i.e parents who or uh, institutional systems that constantly told them that they had psychological issues or people who've been institutionalized or people who have um, experienced any form of decompensation which essentially means inability to show up for life uh, is uh, can become subject for decompensation which is essentially uh, leaves one very very vulnerable to any form of criticism from others it leaves people also um, uh, doing frantically trying to uh, check how normal they are how they constantly need reassurance they become reassurance junkies that their experience is not abnormal they can have be prone towards histrionic 
tendencies and so forth. So um, all of these are common, uh, commonly what uh, anxiety distress or anticipatory distress uh, stems from. In response to these events, people generally rely on defense mechanisms that make it even worse. Defense mechanisms actually keep the memories stuck in the emotional, uh, what the Buddha called the citta realm, the third foundation of mindfulness. Um, uh, people will tend to practice denial, for example, denying that anything is happening, has happened, minimizing, uh, essentially uh, refusing to talk about emotionally painful events in their life. And in doing that, they actually inhibit the process of, of working through and turning the emotional memory into an explicit memory that they can talk about and that inhibits the emotional response that's causing them suffering. Avoidance coping is another standard response that never ever works and if you have any tendency towards it, don't. <laughs> Avoidance coping is the uh, essentially, it's the all too human but essentially um, ultimately uh, self-destructive tendency of avoiding anything that reminds us of an emotionally painful event. So a classic example, I used this last week, uh, is uh, somebody who goes through a painful breakup and then decides, well, I'm not going to go anywhere near the neighborhood of where that person lives because if I run into them it will become it will be too painful I don't want to feel the feelings or somebody's suddenly been fired from a job and refuses to go to Midtown or wherever the job was located and avoidance coping actually informs your amygdala that the stressor is in fact very scary and dangerous and it actually tends to actually grow over time because the amygdala begins to associate even more uh, triggers to it. So at first, if your ex lived in Greenpoint, you might find it easy to avoid Greenpoint, but then you start avoiding Williamsburg, and some of you might say, well, good, I don't want to go there anyway. <laughs> but then you'll start avoiding Bushwick, and then Brooklyn, and then life becomes a little bit cut off. And as well, we never work through. Uh, and the more we stay away or avoid a trigger, the not only more ingrained the trigger becomes in the uh, essentially the implicit non-declarative memory, but essentially avoidance again tends to uh, worsen the emotional response. So anybody who's ever worked in any form of counseling will tell you that avoidance coping does not work. That the way is to develop uh, safe, uh, in safe settings, ways to talk about and frame the experience, to acknowledge the emotions that have been repressed, and then to turn it into a story so that in turning it into a story, we move 
the memory, which was primarily organized by the right amygdala, which will cause sudden anxiety, fear, palpitations, avoid, you know, tendencies to avoid um, dissociation. In moving it from that region and allowing the left hippocampus to organize it as a story, your left hippocampus, when you turn something into a story that you can talk about, actually inhibits the emotional response. That's its job. So, for example, here's a, a, here's a kind of frivolous example. You meet someone at a party, they're really uh, attractive to you, they're really dynamic and funny, it triggers a emotional response called lust or attraction and then subsequently you find out that that person is married and then assuming that you have a, a kind of a moral compass <laughs> you uh, <laughs> you essentially your left, your left, your left hippocampus. I'm so sorry. Your left hippocampus now has a tag, and when you start to see that person and start to feel the attraction, your left hippocampus informs the left dorsolateral and says, "Hey, that person's unavailable. Let's switch our attraction to somebody who's available." And assuming you don't have uh, all kinds of um, uh, attachment complications stemming from earlier in life, you'll be able to do that. Uh, so the key is to integrate the images and sensations into an explicit memory structure where you can narrate the experience. Now, there are a couple things to know. One is that before we do this work, we have to have actually felt the emotions that needed to be felt. Some people have real tendencies of repressing sadness after they've been rejected. They immediately drink. They haven't felt the sadness after an emotional abandonment. If you haven't felt the full emotional spectrum of uh, feelings that are supposed to are natural uh, uh, bilateral messages saying something important's happened, all this work we'll be doing will be for naught. You first have to feel the feelings that are necessary. Uh, some of us repress our anger after we've been mistreated. Instead of feeling, just sitting there and feeling really angry and getting in touch with that just real sense of this is not right, I'm not going to take this, they immediately go into self-pity, sadness, uh, self-harm, some form of depression because they've learned to inhibit their anger through other means. Again, if somebody's mistreated you and it's created uh, a lot of resonant emotional wounds, the first thing you need to do is feel the full range of natural affect or essentially your natural emotional response. Feel it, don't lash out, feel it. Sit there, get so angry you just want to punch something, feel it in your body because that's how emotions are largely processed. Talk about it with someone and then 
we're ready to do the next step, which is to turn the emotional experience into an explicit memory that can essentially regulate the behavioral impulses. Events that happened before the age of five, there's no way you can turn them into a full uh, narrative structure because your left hippocampus wasn't up and running. There was never enough information for you to turn it into a fully fledged story. So if you have a attachment wounds such as abandonment, uh, abuse, emotionally unavailable parents, um, and so forth, or parents that were enmeshing and uh, engulfing, then the best thing to do is a practice called the ideal parent protocol and to work with a therapist. I talked about the ideal parent protocol and other uh, um, uh, classes that are online. It's based on an early Buddhist technique known as Deva Nusati. It's where we visualize an ideal caregiver who could have given us the, met the needs that weren't met in childhood, and they create a felt sense of safety. But for events that happen after six, this practice we're going to do tonight can be very useful. Um, uh, last thing, um, if you have an experience that you are rehashing over and over and over and over again in your mind, uh, and you think, well, I can narrate it because I'm telling the story over and over and over again in my mind about what happened. Well, there's two possibilities there. The first is that the recent experience has triggered an older emotional wound that you've never processed. So if you've been through a recent relational disappointing event with a girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, and they've suddenly, or you've been mistreated, or things have gone wrong, and you keep telling part of the story in your mind, it could, what is largely the uh, likely culprit, is that this experience has reminded you of an earlier abandonment that you never fully processed. So if that's the case, tell yourself the most painful part of the experience visualize it, feel the somatic feelings of abandonment in your body, let go then of the most recent event and free associate what does this feeling remind me of and let your right, essentially your right memory structures largely organized by the amygdala to free associate and they will bring up the older experience hopefully, sometimes it takes time but you'll get in touch with the resonant emotional events that were blocked that actually need to be processed so you can move on. So the recent event that we're repeating in our mind is actually essentially keeping us from processing an earlier abandonment or an earlier abusive interaction or an earlier event. And we have to find out what that is. The second possibility um, is that when we rehash the story over and over again, we're only rehashing part of it. We're not fully narrating it. So it's stuck. We're not actually turning it into a fully explicitly organized memory. So tonight what we're going to be doing in our meditation is we are going to be actually doing a process 
that allows us to turn a recent, I, not an early event, but a recent emotionally wounding event that uh, we haven't fully processed into an explicit memory. We're going to be going through all the stages of it. We're going to actually feel some of the resonant somatic physical emotions and then we're going to move into uh, acknowledging any behaviors that actions that need to be taken on these emotions behalf and then we're going to turn it into explicit story so that we can now talk about the event without it becoming as overwhelming or painful and it doesn't hopefully will not lead to any dysregulated emotional responses to do this I'm going to need you to know how to do two things. The first is orienting or grounding. Orienting is a way you create a lower body sensation that allows you to safely work through uh, any emotionally resonant experience. The point of it is, is to create a sensation that will allow you to, uh, no matter how uh, uncomfortable and emotional experiences it'll give you a sensation that is neutral so that you won't be fully flooded is the term you can essentially have something that as a sensation that creates uh, distance from the pain or the discomfort so if we're doing this all I ask is that you take a moment and you squint your toes there you go squinching you feel the sensation of squinching your toes so when you're working through painful emotion, you can either grab your knees or squinch your toes, creates a sensation in your lower body. It's a contrast to any somatic pain in your chest, your stomach, your throat. So it gives you a contrast. And in uh, counseling, we very often do pendulating, where people go from a painful feeling into a safe, neutral feeling. And that's the safe, neutral feeling. The second part is when we do the practice, there's a, a, t a practice called the butterfly hug. Butterfly hug is I'd like you all to cross your hands, your, across your chest, like so. And essentially, yeah, you're it looks like you're now dead. You're like, you know, it's like the uh, death pose. And uh, so your right hand over your left chest and vice versa. And then what we're going to do, and this is going to require some dexterity, and so I, I urge you well, is you're going to tap left and right. Yes, look at this, a bunch of naturals. You took to this like uh, butterflies. So um, that's what we're going to do. Butterfly hug actually in uh, EMDR practice, they believe it creates what's called bilateral stimulation, where the left and right hemispheres are activated. There's very, very scant clinical evidence right now backing that up, but still, who knows? <laughs> Not doubting it. Just do that very gently so that you're creating it. So we're not going to do it yet. It's only at one point in the meditation we're going to start. So that's the story. I'm sticking with it. I hope you got something, there was something worth listening to. So now find a really comfortable seated position. We're actually going to put this practice 
uh, into effect. We're going to be bringing up a emotionally challenging event, feeling the feelings, acknowledging what actions needed to be taken. We're going to then turn it into a story so that we can start to organize this. And in case you're curious, by the way, this practice is very similar to what's known in early Buddhism as Dhamma Vikaya, which is <clears throat> Dhamma Vikaya is the Buddha's one of the seven factors of awakening, where the Buddha said to search for the truth of what's happened, to turn experiences into less personally tr emotionally triggering events to something that we can gain wisdom and understanding. And the first way we do that is through turning it into a story that we can talk about. So, closing the eyes, taking a moment to bob with your eyes closed from left, right, front, and back like you are a bowling pin. And you're not going to go over, but you're in that kind of weird wobbly thing. And then allow your body to come on its own to a natural, upright position. Good. And then take a moment and tilt your head back, lifting your chin up so that essentially it's like you're looking at a tall building. And just that little change can do so much in allowing us to sit in an upright position without causing any neck and upper back stress. And also, while your head is balanced over your body, it's easier to become more aware of physical sensations in your body. So let's take our three breaths to start the practice of landing in this moment. So take a really full in-breath through your nose or your mouth and lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears. Just hold them up for a moment and then as you breathe out through your mouth, drop them like you just put down two heavy suitcases, one in each hand, and then Pull them slightly back so that your chest opens up. You've got a lot of space to breathe. Things feel really open and spacious, and that's opening up the vagal vagus nerve, which is a nerve cluster that informs your midbrain of how safe you are. It also changes your body sensations in case you're not safe. So in doing that, you're telling your midbrain, I'm actually pretty safe right now. The next in-breath, pull in your abdomen or push it out, whichever feels more natural to you. And then as you breathe out, relax the abdominal muscles. And again, we're doing the same thing with the vagal vagus nerve. And then finally, a third breath, squinching the muscles in the face, making a pinched, nasty little poutish face. And then breathe out. 
relaxing the muscles in the jaw, around the eyes, the forehead, and send a very personal request to your eyes, and asking that they settle down behind the eyelids, reminding them that right now there's nothing to look for, that you've shut the curtains so they can settle down and they can relax for a little while. Their job of looking around, looking for threats and dangers and opportunities is no longer needed. Now bring your awareness to all the sensations surrounding you, the car horns and sounds of New York that are arriving into conscious awareness and just allow them to be there. You're not trying to do anything but just listen as if you've never heard these sounds before. Imagine you've come from a very, very distant planet and through some very special technology, you've landed in a human body and you're just hearing for the first time, and you don't even really know or care what these sounds are stemming from. You've got no interest in visualizing what's creating the sounds. You're just hearing what's actually present as if it's a strange kind of music. Also feeling the sensations of the body for the first time. <coughs> so the feeling of the body breathing and the contact sensations with the ground and with clothing, feelings of heat or coolness. all are really welcome. And are just interesting sensations. Nothing is good or bad. It's just you're feeling your body, this body for the first time. And because this is such a special event for you, traveled a long journey to get into this body from that distant planet. You have no desire to think about anything right now in the past or future or any other place. 
you've just landed in this really resonant, complex, fully saturated, immersive experience of being alive in a human body. You might never have this opportunity again. Stay present in this experience. Just try to stay as close to the actual sensations that are really happening. And if a thought, not about what you're experiencing right now, but about something happening somewhere else, creates a virtual reality where you're no longer experiencing this moment, but you're lost in a daydream, fantasy, memory. We have time to do that later, but right now, just when you notice that's happened, feel good that you're developing mindfulness and then just release the virtual reality by returning to the actual sensations surrounding you, the sounds, the feelings, the breath, lights flickering behind closed eyelids, <clears throat> contact sensations. There's an entire world of experience to return to. So just do it with as much Ease, adding no impatience or frustration. If nothing else, just let a meditation be a time where you get to be with your experience without any need to judge or criticize.
Anytime you might be struggling, just let go of any expectation or story about what you're supposed to be experiencing and just notice whatever's happening. There's no right or wrong experience. All you need to do is just keep letting go of any virtual reality your mind creates that pulls you away from this moment. But if you want to think about how you can relax right now, how you can settle in, that's fine.
So at this point, I'd like you to bring to mind a recent, by not too much in the distant past, unpleasant event. I'd like to request that it not be something that would raise the level of a trauma where you felt like your life was in danger or involved the physical harm of someone that's important to you, but anything else, especially events where you felt suddenly verbally attacked out of the blue, disconnected with in a really sudden, abrupt, uncaring way. Any event where you felt sudden abandoned or embarrassed, any just recent event that felt really unpleasant and you'd like to work through. So bring to mind whatever experience that was and either allow the most resonant image to come to mind or just ask yourself how does it feel to be, and then fill in the blank, mistreated, attacked, judged, not taken care of, a feeling of being left out of a gathering or being cared for by a friend. How does it feel to reach out to someone and not have them respond? How does it feel to have a group of people we felt were friends, not include us? Any emotionally resonant experience. And just ask yourself how it feels and see if you can connect with the core emotional experience. If it felt like mistreatment, see if you can connect with some underlying physical anger. And by connect with, I mean feel it in your body. Don't right now turn it into a story. First, just feel the tightness in the arms, the neck, the forehead. Just connect with it as a feeling. Buddha might have called dukkha vedana, just unpleasant physical sensations associated with a core emotional response. Just feel that, or if it's a situation where you felt left out of, disconnected, unloved, unseen, then maybe the emotion is sadness. Or maybe it was an experience that, where we need to feel disgust. We saw something that really triggers core emotional revulsion. Just see if you can find the feelings in your body. There's no processing an emotionally resonant event until we feel it first.
know if the belly needs to be tight or the whatever needs to jaw needs to be locked or forehead squinched or chest needs to feel tight or shoulders locked whatever just feel it and if the feelings are too strong squinch the toes so you can feel the feelings but also have a safe sensation outside of the emotion The second step is to ask this feeling what we need to do to feel protected. If it's anger, we might need to set a boundary we might need to set a rule in our relationship with this person or in future relationships to protect us from feeling this again. If it's fear, we might need to get distance from this person. If it's sadness, we might need to take time before reconnecting. Know what would be an appropriate action if you can have a sense of that now. If no appropriate action, protective action comes to mind, that's something to work on in the future. Resonant experiences ask, ask that we take measured responses to protect us. Now let's focus on turning this resonant experience into a story so that it has less triggering effects on us. So put your hands in cross fashion in front of your chest and just very, very lightly tap. And while we're doing that, I'd like you in the movie theater of your mind to bring to mind the very earliest experience you associate with this event, something that happened right before, right before interacting with this person, these people sending out a message that wasn't returned. What is the earliest experience? Just hold it in your mind. And I'd like you just, as you hold that earliest experience, 
just to, in your mind, narrate first this happened. And then let's follow with another image that happened after that, another event. If you don't see the visual, just know what happened after and say it in your mind. And then, for example, and then I didn't get a response or suddenly this person started. verbally criticizing everything I did or became distant. And if there's any strong body sensations, just note what are the most painful aspects. Is it a tight stomach, a tight chest? Keep the left and right tapping and squinch your toes if it's a very strong feeling. And just allow the feeling to be there and know what it is. And then for the following image, getting into the real heart, of the most, the most outrageous, the most unpleasant. Really feeling the squinched toes, the tapping, just breathing. And then this really unpleasant interaction occurred where I felt where I felt unsafe where I felt alone, where I felt unseen, where I felt uncared about. Turning the feelings that were most difficult into words. In this event, I felt And then moving towards the last part of the interaction or experience. Of course, we could make as many steps in this as we wanted, but for now. And then finally, I never saw them again. I left. What happened? Now simply hold a visual of being here. 302 Bowery, a safe space surrounded by supportive people. And just in your mind, repeat, in essence, the story. 
this happened, then this, and then this really unpleasant event, and then that, and that was in the past, now I'm here. Turning it into a story that we can share with others. Turning it into a story that now organizes the event. And gently stop tapping and allow your hands to fall to your side whenever you feel ready. Unsquinch your toes. And when you hear the sound of the bowl, just take as long as you want to open your eyes. <laughs>